Welcome to Money Talks. My name is Mike Campbell. You know, I've never, I don't think I've ever said this before, though. I mean, I follow the tech system, the tech sector very, very closely. I always feel I'm playing catch up. And I got another example. But this example is something that I think will really excite you. It's something that you can use. Maybe you've heard about it. Uh, chat GPT. Well, it's amazing. I called it sort of a Siri on steroids. We're going to talk about that, but you can be using it today. You can be using it in just a few minutes. I think you're going to love it, really enjoy it, but stay tuned. I've got Ian Patterson of Pluralock to talk about it. I've also got Jeff Olin though, Vision Capital. These guys have had a fabulous track record buying and selling in the real estate sector in the stock markets, various stock markets. And again, they can play the stocks to go up and down, but what they do have had an uncanny knack of finding stuff that's undervalued that, of course, benefits their investors. Uh, but I've got Aussie with me. I'm also going to talk about one aspect uh, of, I guess I would say, the Canadian economy that just doesn't get enough play, and that is our incredible TSX Venture Exchange helping small companies raise capital. Vice President Tim Babcock is going to be with me. Uh, looking forward to that. And as I say, the normal stuff, I've got Victor, I've got Michaels, I said Ozzy, I've got Shocking Stat of the Week, I've got um, a Goofy Award, of course, one that I, stay with me for this one, it's going to be controversial, but boy, I challenge someone to come back at me and say how it's not true. All of that coming your way, glad you're with us. But first, while the private sector is wrestling with recessionary pressures, well, government's in a bull market. Now, I don't know if you're going to be shocked by this or not, but Remember all the big noise about job games, for example, you know, post-pandemic? Well, we know a couple things about that. Is first, come on, when government borrows and spends hundreds of billions of dollars and a lot of it going, or actually most of it going to people who weren't hurt directly financially during the pandemic, how can anyone be surprised that it's going to result in economic growth or, you know, job numbers or stuff like that? I mean, because consumers are going to take the money and go out and spend, and that's what's happened. But here's the thing. The second thing to know is that the vast majority of the jobs created were in the public sector. With estimates as much as 85% of the new jobs were with government, you know, post-pandemic. But that's continuing another trend, which is the ever-increasing size of government when it comes to employment. I mean, government employment at all three levels have grown at over twice the rate of the private sector. That's 18.5% versus 9% since 2015 with the federal government leading the way. I mean, think about this. You go back to 2015, there were 257,000 federal government employees, 257. You know what there are now? 336,000 as you come through 2022. Here's the troubling thing though. This is in a country that the OECD forecast is gonna have the worst economic growth among the world's 35 advanced nations over the next 10 years. Now, maybe that's going to change. It looks like Europe's really fighting hard to take that bottom spot from us, thanks to their energy policies, but we'll see. I mean, but the federal government's own forecast calls for under 2% growth between this year and 2026. And just so you're clear, 2% growth is not enough to sustain social programs like old age security or health care, let alone the raft of promises the government continues to make. And by the way, the OEC is for, or forecasting that Canada is also going to be the worst performing economy among advanced nations between 2030 and 2060. My thing is, do many people care? I mean, it seems that for most of us, especially those enamored with political gossip, few people do care, including the government. 
As former finance minister Bill Morneau stated after he left government, there's no sense of urgency in Ottawa about Canada's lack of competitiveness, our fundamental problem. I mean, I think the economy is just one of those things we take for granted, at least until we may lose our own job. But this is where it gets tricky for me, at least. Because the evidence is that while Canadians do care about the cost of living, or their job, or maybe social programs of some sort, they don't seem to make the connection to economic growth. I mean, it shouldn't matter where you put yourself on the political spectrum. Economic growth is the key to so many issues. Maybe obviously ones like poverty or job creation, but to things like the sustainability of the social safety net. But think how far down the list of concerns, things like declining competitiveness, declining productivity, the lack of capital investment coming into the country in machinery or equipment, buildings and intellectual property. I mean, where is that in our list of concerns? Well, they're all key components, though, to economic growth or job creation or whatever, the overall standard of living. No one seems to bat an eye, though. During the last federal election, I I remember just my eyes dropped, you know, going, wow. When the former chief economist of StatsCan, Philip Cross, he stated that Canada's 10-year average of real GDP, you take the economic growth minus inflation, was only 1.5%. That's our worst performance since the Great Depression. I mean, no questions during the leaders' debate about it. No, not in the last election. No questions about the fact that the U.S. spends twice as much per worker on research and development. But then again, I go to surveys like uh, Meru Blue Poll a while ago that found 68% of Canadians think their kids are going to be worse off financially. Only 27% thought they'd be better off. So maybe we do care. I mean, given the debt we're unloading, the higher tax burden, the lack of any clear plan for economic growth, hey, they're probably going to be right. But whether we care or not, as famed economist Thomas Sowell says, you know what? You can't redistribute income without first earning it. Although in today's world of record debt to finance many of the things we want, maybe a lot of people disagree. They think, just print up more money. Or maybe Professor Sowell's observation will hold true. And at some point, we'll come back to that relationship between earning and spending. Or, and it's a big or, the currency will be remarkably devalued as money is printed to finance the borrowing. And as a result, our standard of living is going to follow the declining purchasing power of the loonie. Now, you may have noticed that governments have handled every major problem since, uh, like the fallout of the pandemic and restrictions, uh, the UK pension problems, UK energy crisis by printing up, creating huge amounts of money. And I don't think there's any evidence they're going to change that approach. That's why, by the way, on Money Talks, our focus is, has been, continues to be, including at the World Outlook Conference, how to protect yourself from the massive drop in purchasing power of the paper currencies. I think this is the biggest financial challenge of your life. We've done a great job on Money Talks so far. I'm happy about it. Why? I'm Since 2014, we said, hey, Every kind of strength in the Canadian dollar, get out of it, get into the U.S. dollar. That's helped. That's why we've been recommending commodities since 2020-21. You know, copper, nickel, oil, and gas. That's why we named the February 220 Outlook Conference the coming bull market in commodities. It's all about this. The paper currency, the erosion of its purchasing power, as I said, the biggest financial challenge of our life. Hey, by the way, speaking of the World Outlet, it's February 3rd and 4th. Where have you been if you haven't been harangued by me on that one? But I am very excited. So many great speakers going to join us. Uh, looking forward to Kevin Muir, Tony, Tony Greer. Uh, we've got Greg Weldon. This is just off the top of my head. I always love James Thorne. 
uh, Joseph Schacht. We've got more coming, and I'll, I'll list them as we go. Bottom line is go to mikesmoneytalks.ca, mikesmoneytalks.ca to get your ticket. we got so much more planned, including on this show, as I said right up at the top. we got a change in what I'd call the tech world, something that you and I can use as a tool that is nothing short of absolutely revolutionary. We'll chat about that. Uh, Jeff Olin's coming up. Oh, so much coming your way. I'm so glad you're with us. You know, one of the things I really like about doing Money Talks over a great number of years, but I get to talk to smart people, people who've done exceptionally well in their jobs, in their business. And Jeff Olin is right there on my short list of that. Jeff Olin, Vision Opportunity Funds, vision.ca. Uh, also has the Vision Alternative Income Fund. And uh, this is for people that you could put in your RSP or just buy it like a regular mutual fund, that thing. And I'll just do one more thing. I know I'm going on, but I want to make sure you understand this. One of the things I love about this fund and I've loved it for well over a decade is that they can play stocks to go up and down. And that's where their purview is for the real estate market. Any sector of it, they do it through the stock market. Jeff Olin is here, co-founder. Jeff, thanks for finding time for us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Let me. I'm just going to start with the, that long short thing because, uh, as I say, it's a unique feature that you've done. You've made money playing uh, stocks to go up and down. Let's start with this. Why the stock market as opposed to just going out and buying an apartment, for example? Well, I've done that. I, I've worked. I began my career in the private property markets. I've done development. I've done leasing. I've done operations. I've done applying and design, and I've done acquisitions and dispositions. So I have some good context to your question. Firstly, the core of what we do is we seek to buy real estate cheaper in the stock market than one can in the property market. So our strategy involves looking at the underlying net asset value of the real estate. What is that real estate worth in the property market and then comparing it to what is trading at in the stock market? So you can't do that in the property market. We say, why do we need to be the 17th entity to compete? against a pension fund, a REIT, an entrepreneur with too much money in his or her genes to buy property in an auction hosted by CBRE or Colliers when we can buy real estate at 60, 70, 80 cents in a dollar in the stock market. Get professional management, get corporate governance, get transparency, get geographic diversification. You might be an expert on Vancouver apartments, doesn't mean know you anything about Toronto apartments or Dallas industrial or Miami hotels. You So you get property type diversification. You get liquidity, which is always important, but certainly making the headlines here with, you know, what's happening with Blackstone's REIT, liquidity is always important. Um, and the opposite is true to your opening comments. If the fundamentals are negative, or valuations are excessive, you can't do anything about that in the property market. You can't short an overvalued office building if you own or don't own that office building. We can do something about that when valuations are excessive in the stock market by being able to be short. And, and of course, you can do it geographically too. And I, I, I'm saying that because, Jeff, I, you mentioned play, being able to play things to go down in the market. I just remember how much money you made Money Talks and World Outlook Conference uh, investors when you talked about the impact of the oil decline, you know, going back, you know, 214, 215, that sort of really dismal period uh, on the Calgary office, uh, you know, market. And 
So as you say, somebody gets stuck if they're just a holder. What you guys did is you went out and played it to go down in you know with certain products, uh, certain vehicles on the market, and you did darn well. Yeah, certainly relevant to 2022 as well. I mean, uh, when I don't think it goes without saying, the top five attribution in our fund last year were short positions. And we were probably the most negative guys on the planet to office. Uh, and the fundamentals look like they're playing out worse than even we thought. Yeah, interesting. Well, let's talk about the environment there, uh, what you're seeing. And as I say, you guys would look at commercial. You'll look at, uh, you know, obviously single homes. You'll look at REITs, that kind of stuff. So uh, can you, I, I don't know, this is terrible. Here, here you spend your life doing this stuff with your team at Vision. And I'm asking for the quick summary, but what the heck. <laughs> So in terms of our outlook today, yes, please. I mean, we're, we're firstly, we're underwriting, assuming a recession. Let's get that clear. Uh, we're not here to be bulls for real estate. Uh, we're underwriting, assuming a recession. We're underwriting, assuming the Fed takes the Fed funds rate to roughly 5%-ish, uh, you know, over or under. Uh, but if we have a recession, perhaps precipitated by this move in the Fed funds rate, uh, what folks need to know is that is very likely, and we said this when the 10-year U.S. bond was around 440, 435, that it was very unlikely in that context of a recession that U.S. 10-year bond yield would be anything but down by the end of 2023. And right now, economists' forecasts indicate maybe 320 on average for the 10-year U.S. bond. And that's what's important to real estate. It's not the Fed funds rate. It's a 10-year U.S. bond in equivalence. Uh, so in that context, uh, we're looking at caution. We like single-family rental homes in the Sun Belt, the United States. These are homes that you rent. When you have mortgage costs that are very high, it's difficult to afford. You're paying your mortgage, but you need to put a roof over your kid's head. We like that space. We continue to like the industrial space. Uh, three, three powerful demand drivers continue. E-commerce, you saw yesterday uh, the announcement by the Three Amigos or sorry, not the Three Amigos, or I guess the Three Amigos, uh, down in Mexico, a target of 25% of imports from Asia being manufactured onshore North America. That's the second factor we've been talking about for a long time on your show, reshoring. Um, and the third is uh, the replacement of just-in-time su to supply chain to just-in-case inventory management. So the demand for industrial real estate we like. We like necessity-based retail, grocery store, and pharmacy-anchored retail. You still got to put food on your table in a recession. Um, we like manufactured housing communities, uh, affordable homes. This sector has never had 12 months of declining net operating income, including the Great Recession. So that's on the long side what we like today. Uh, and we continue to be cautious in office and malls and hotels. Yeah, it's, it's such a fascinating environment. And again, uh, this is one of the reasons, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a fan of what you guys do because it's so thorough, as I say, and doing things that uh, I may be sophisticated, but I can't tell you what's going on in Arizona tomorrow morning, you know, or I can't tell you what's going on in another area. And uh, obviously, that's exactly the kind of depth of research that you guys perform. Um, give me an example of something, you know, I'm not going to get the cat out of the bag. You're going to be at the World Outlook Conference and uh, I'll get you to, there, there I'll, I'll, I'll get you to certainly uh, expand on what you, you guys are looking at, what individuals can look at. But uh, give me an example of something that's sort of meeting your criteria these days. 
I mean, if you play on uh, the, the the themes we liked, and I probably missed one, which is Canadian apartments, which is uh, selectively uh, heavily being driven by immigration, um, in particular in Alberta. Uh, so First Capital REIT uh, is a name we like. Again, this is grocery store, pharmacy anchored shopping centers, $4 billion market cap. It's got a 5% dividend. Uh, we uh, we were on your uh, show in um, September. We yeah. said corporate action was appropriate for this name. It's the single best grocery port- store portfolio, we believe, globally, globally. Uh, and yet the stock significantly underperformed their peers over a five-year period. We called for corporate action and it's come in spades. And I don't want to cite it, but there's lots of corporate action uh, a lot of hostile investors uh, that have uh, come out of the woodwork here. So we like that one. The value, according to the company, is about twenty-three fifty. So you've got you know a 25% discount to net asset value, and you get a 5% dividend while you wait in the best portfolio you can get globally. So that's one we like. Boardwalk REIT uh, Apartments, 60% Alberta. Alberta just had a quarter. The highest net migration of both immigration and provincial migration in its history, including the great oil days, economy is strong, no rent controls, boardwalk has affordable apartments, it's $2.6 billion market cap. We think it's 15 to 20% discount to net asset value. So why do we need to go buy an apartment when I can buy boardwalk REIT? We like that. In the industrial sector, we talked about it, two names, uh, you know, we were on your show in September, and a top pick we talked about was Summit REIT. Uh, and we said there's a 50% gap between their in-place rents and market rents. Well, uh, there was an announcement, hasn't closed yet, but in November, the Government of Singapore Pension Plan partnered up uh, with a small, not a small REIT, but small investment with Dream Industrial to be a local manager to bid and generate a 30 premium to where this stock was trading in the marketplace because of the positive fundamentals of industrial, particularly in Canada. Uh, And so today, Summit's gone, but you can do that with Dream Industrial REIT, uh, which is, again, $3 billion and 30% discount. Does that sound familiar? 30% discount, which is where Summit was trading before government of Singapore stepped in to announce its purchase. Uh, again, 5.4% uh, yield on that right to today. Apartments, not sorry, apartments, industrial real estate, 60% in Canada, 40% in Europe. In the US, we like first industrial REIT on the New York Stock Exchange, $7 billion market cap, 20% discount to the net asset value. And the last one I mentioned, uh, or two last ones I mentioned, uh, single family rentals. We like American Homes for Rent, $13 billion market cap, 20% discount to the value of their homes. And in the manufactured housing community space, their preferred name is Sun Communities. Uh, this is a $20 billion market cap, trading at a 20% discount. Affordable homes never had 12 months of declining net operating income. So we sleep well on behalf of our investors uh, with these kinds of holdings in a recessionary environment. Uh, a, f- a few things out of that. One is it is a great explanation also of the approach that you take at Vision. And that is, as you say, uh, you can go out and pay X for this, but if the market's giving you a discount uh, because of sort of certain market actions or the psychology of the moment, that kind of thing, that's what you're taking advantage of. And I think 
all of those are, uh, you know, illustrative of that approach. Yeah, I mean, we could do a three-hour show on just why this is there. Uh, it's more fascinating. Uh, you know, people say, what are the inefficiencies and why? The what's easy, we touched on that, the difference between the value of the real estate and what it's trading at. The why is more complex, uh, for sure. And uh, But it's there. The reason, you know, we quit our jobs 15 years ago to do this is we've never found a period of time in the last 40 years where you couldn't buy real estate cheaper in the stock market than you can in the property market. Is it an easier time? Uh, easier might be the wrong adjective, but uh, you know, how do you look at this market environment when sort of there was a negative psychology? You know, every moment we seem to bet on what the Federal Reserve or the Bank of Canada is going to do, etc. Uh, do you sit there and sort of uh, just look for opportunities coming out of the psychology of that? Yeah, we like these kinds of markets. Listen, we, we're a long, short fund, and we don't use any leverage. We don't use borrowed money. So when a rising tide is lifting all boats it's harder for guys like us to differentiate ourselves mm -hmm. but now when there's volatility stock picking matters more um and so we don't need to add exposure to do well i mean in 2021 our funds were up between 20 to 25 percent and we had less than 50 percent exposure to the market um and so we don't need to have a big exposure to do well uh and in this kind of context where there's volatility volatility is our friend and just again, one of the things I always like to remind people is that, uh, you know, it's, it's our favorite, one of our favorite expressions on money talks, make sure you match the time frame with the analysis, you know, and you're not hearing somebody talk about a three month thing when you're in there for four years. What kind of, would you just broadly recommend a holding period for something like vision, you know, the vision alternative income fund? Yeah, I mean, we do have funds that are redeemable on 30 days, but we tell investors uh, we're long-term investors. If you're looking to invest for three months, six months, uh, that's not for us. Uh, you know, you know, you can do it, but uh, and you can market time it if you want. But the themes we focus on, mm -hmm. you mentioned Calgary office. That took three years to play it out. It was our number one attribution over a couple of years, but it took three years to work out. These themes, this real estate, these are long-term investments. Um, and which is why when, you know, it's getting a lot of press, Blackstone REIT, Starwood REIT, uh, putting up gates to investors, they um, promised a certain tranche of liquidity for their investors on a short-term basis, but they own real estate properties. Mm -hmm. They don't have the ability to affect that liquidity. And so even though we do, our philosophy is the same. When we're real estate focused investors, we happen to do it through the stock market. So. To me, you know, a year to three years is an appropriate time frame to consider investment. Sure, if your life, something changes, and you need liquidity, we can provide that for you. But going in, that's the kind of approach that we would take. And we pay a dividend. We pay a distribution, so you get paid while you wait. Um, and we do that because real estate investors are used to getting that cash flow. And so we provide that uh, as well. Well, I'll tell you, I'm always fascinated to hear you uh, so well informed with your team at Vision. I really look forward to seeing you at the just seeing you in person for a change, by the way, Jeff, but uh, also seeing you at the Outlook Conference. Much appreciate you finding time here. Uh, as I say, I'll have my notepad and uh, paper ready to go uh, when you're here. Nice to chat with you. I look forward to seeing you shortly. And, uh, you know, for those that are thinking about going to the conference, forget Vision. Uh, if you've hung around that conference, uh, it's an extraordinary opportunity to get exposure to a lot of smart minds in a lot of different areas and understand where the future is going, not what happened last year. 
uh, great stuff. And I just want to remind you, it's a Vision Alternative Income Fund, you know, eligible for your RSP. Uh, you know, as you say, you can just buy it as a, uh, you know, normally, uh, you know, vision.ca, Vision Cap. Uh, great stuff. Vision Capital. Jeff Olin, he'll be at the Outlook Conference February 3rd and 4th. Be well, Michael. Do you ever get the feeling like you're always playing catch up in the tech side? I mean, I certainly do. I mean, I'm of an age. Isn't that a polite way of saying it? I'm old. But uh, phenomenal interest. I read every single day on stuff coming out of the tech world. Uh, We obviously apply it and use it. But I still feel like I'm behind. And then something new comes along, and that doesn't help my feeling at all. And that's why I've asked... uh, Ian Patterson from Perlock to come on. He's a great guy to chat with, uh, an expert in this area. But let me just start with this, Ian. I've been reading about this thing called Chat GPT. Uh, I think we've got to start with you telling me what the heck it's all about. Well, Chat GPT, I think, is probably the biggest innovation since search engines on the internet. That's how big of a deal this technology could be. In really plain English, ChatGPT is a uh, it's a type of artificial intelligence called a large language model. And the way that it works is you give it a prompt, which could mean that you ask it a question. And then seemingly like magic, it will give you back a response. What's fascinating about this technology, though, is that you can ask it effectively any question because it's been trained on the entirety of the internet, meaning it has the knowledge of the entirety of the internet to, to pull from. Wow. <laughs> Sorry. Wow. <laughs> not, not a very concise response, but my goodness. But when you first started to learn about this, did you just sort of knock your socks off and say, holy smokes, this is big time. People got to know about this? Well, I think that the the, the type of technology here is, is truly game-changing. If you think about what happened... Uh, back when the when the early internet came around, there was a, an access to information. But but not only was there access to information, it was possible to get information. It was possible with the result of search engines to get information quickly, and that's why you saw Google becoming one of the most uh, valuable companies in the world because they were providing this magical service that allows you to very very quickly ask a question and get an answer. Now the 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 answers that Google gives you or, or, or that Bing or, or AltaVista back in the day gives you is a reference. It's a pointer to something else that exists online. The, the key difference here with ChatGPT and other forms of, of LMMs, LLMs, excuse me, is that they will uh, synthesize information, meaning you can ask it, uh, for instance, to get a summary of a specific topic that might, summary might come from hundreds, thousands, or even millions of different sources, and it will provide you back a summary and, and synthesize original content um, that, again, will will just seem like it is magic. It seems like you are actually talking with a, a true artificial intelligent creature. Well, for someone like myself who does a lot of reading, a lot of research, I mean, that sounds like this is going to simplify things for me. Uh, I, you know, one of the big challenges is to grasp kind of everything that's out there, but will it make the decision of what's relevant and what's not? Well, I think if you ask it that question, you you might be surprised by the answer. Uh, you could simply ask it things like, what are the, uh, the top investments of this decade? Uh, you could ask it, what are the uh, top contrarian investments of this decade? It is then going to look and, and compute uh, on the basis of the entirety of the internet, 
what it should answer for you. And the answer it gives back to you might be completely original, and it might actually seem uh, like like it was written by by an expert. I'm just wondering if is this going to change uh, everybody doing term papers at university or or something of that sort? They could just sort of take advantage of uh, Chat GPT and and uh, presto, you've got something original. So they're not going to accuse you of plagiarism, but you're just going to hand it in and I think do awfully well. So already been the case, and and students have been expelled uh, because oh. they they did use ChatGPT. It it generated a paper. They they put it in, and and uh, uh, unfortunately, the student was uh, was challenged and admitted that he used ChatGPT. But I think it's going to be game changing across a number of industries. Certainly, education uh, is going to be one area where you can no longer rely on uh, on the students producing an original work and then basing their uh, their grade. On the quality of that work, because simply you can you can write one term paper, you could write a thousand term papers uh, with ChatGPT. It's a, it's functionally no different in terms of the, the computational cost. But really, any industry or any job function that requires uh, a fairly low level synthesization of of data or information is going to be impacted. And I actually don't think that that you or I could name all of the industries that will be impacted. I'll give you a, another example. In my industry, uh, it, as, as we've often talked about cybersecurity, one of the common uh, uh, processes that happens when you're going to work with a new customer is you often have to fill out a security questionnaire. So it's a cybersecurity questionnaire. Many business owners have to deal with this. It's painful. Uh, you, you have to fill out an Excel sheet. It's, it's all basically the same questions, but everybody has a different version of the, of the Excel sheet. Takes a, a lot of time, uh, questionable whether it actually provides any value. Um, but we were experimenting this past week and we actually created a tool using ChatGPT. Uh, it's available at uh, labs.plurilock.com. And you can upload a security questionnaire. You upload the, secure, the, the Excel sheet. We use ChatGPT to fill it in and you get a completed security questionnaire almost instantaneously. Now think about any type of action or any type of operation in a business setting or even in a creative setting um, where you have to synthesize information and that suddenly is going to take away not only jobs from people, um, but it'll be fascinating, I think, uh, in terms of what it unlocks in terms of new business modalities. What about, um, and again, how easy will this be to be used, like even to start? Will I download it and, man, Bob's your uncle, I'm off to the whole races? So you can certainly uh, go to uh, uh, OpenAI. That's the uh, foundation behind ChatGPT. You can sign up for a free account and you can start playing around with it. Notably, uh, ChatGPT is, is one version of a large language model. Uh, there are other uh, companies out there that have similar types of technologies um, we, we can talk a little bit about, um, uh, you know, why OpenAI might be different, why, why they might be successful. Uh, but this, this currently is a, is a, free, it is a free tool. Um, what, what might be interesting uh, coming up is that uh, as of this week, there's discussions between OpenAI, the foundation behind ChatGPT, and Microsoft um, of a multi-billion dollar investment from Microsoft to OpenAI. Um, and I think that it, that's that's really interesting for two reasons. One, the amount of money being contemplated is massive. But two, um, there's there's a a, a saying, there's a, a maxim in data science that whoever has the most data wins. And so, if you if you think about uh, a, a large language model that's trained on the entirety of the internet, 
it, effectively, it means that any other company could do roughly the same thing and in theory get something comparably similar in terms of functionality. The, the discussions that have been reported so far around this investment from Microsoft into OpenAI is actually twofold. One, they, they don't only get the, the technology, uh, but they'll then be able to integrate that. Now, what happens if you integrate ChatGPT inside of Microsoft Word? What happens if you integrate ChatGPT inside of, of your Outlook client? It does two things. One, suddenly as a customer, fantastic. I can I can very quickly write documents. I can very quickly write email. The other thing I think, though, is, is really interesting is that OpenAI suddenly gets access to a set of data to build their next version of the product that nobody else would have. So I think it's a very interesting investment strategy that they're taking. And uh, again, I really like that you're making the recommendation. I mean, maybe the, this is just introductory. So the easiest thing might be to go to OpenAI and fool around with it a bit for individuals and just see what it is and what it's about and how it may adapt to your own personal life or your business, as you say. I mean, it would seem to be anybody in business better better, better do that. You know, it might be an advantage, uh, might leverage other things, reduce costs, et cetera. So it is that simple. Eh? Go to OpenAI and uh, simply start fooling around. So OpenAI is, is certainly one place that you can you can start. There are a number of uh, generative AI companies out there or, or generative AI products uh, that are coming to market. DALI uh, would be another example of, of a generative AI product. This is, um, you, you might have seen uh, AI-generated uh, images. Um, that's also an, an OpenAI product. So there's a number of these tools that are coming on market um, that, that you can play with. I will say, just from a, a, a business owner's perspective, um, we, we've been playing with, with ChatGPT now for, for two or three weeks. And uh, unfortunately, the, the service is so popular, it's, it's going down frequently because so many people are trying to play with it. And we're already, not, even though we've only started playing with it for two or three weeks, we're already missing it when it goes down. <laughs> and I, I just, I cannot overemphasize how much of a game-changing technology this is, this is going to be. Well, we're going to have to explore it a lot more as we go forward, and I appreciate you finding time with us, Ian. I mean, as I say, it's fascinating for your your business, which is, of course, cybersecurity on a lot of different levels, you know, with Pluralock, but uh, as I say, expansive to all businesses individually. I, I'm fascinated. I'm going to start this weekend. So, uh, Ian, thanks so much for finding time for us. Thanks, Mike. Hey, and just a reminder, I want to let you know that Ian's going to be with us at the World Outlook Conference, February 3rd and 4th. I mean, talk about being in a growth area, cybersecurity, uh, so many different levels. Uh, he's talked to governments, corporations, individuals. So take advantage of that. That's one of the great things about being back in person is uh, you've heard Ian here, read about him, other things with Pluralock. Well, take advantage. You got questions? He's a great guy. He'll answer them at the World Outlook Conference, February 3rd, 4th. Time now for the quote of the week. Hey, first I better issue a trigger warning because some people will be upset because I believe in free speech, especially the value of asking questions, including questioning authority. Now that goes against the prevailing attitude, especially when it comes to hot button issues. I mean, we could be talking climate change, no questions. Certainly was front and center when it came to the government's response to COVID where an intense program to stifle contrary opinions or questions, even from highly credentialed experts about the government's approach, were aggressively discouraged, even to the point of, hey, by the way, some people's jobs weren't just threatened, they were lost. It's now clear that as author and journalist David Zweig, he spent three years reporting on COVID, stated in quotes, 
During the COVID-19 pandemic, I and so many others found the legacy media had shown itself to largely operate as a messaging platform for our public health institutions. Well, Mark Zuckerberg said Facebook succumbed to the pressure of the FBI and the White House, while the Twitter files make clear its willingness to censor experts whose views differed from the government narrative, and especially for pointing out that the government policies at times were not based on science, instead were just politics. I mean, it's a huge subject, and it merits, merits a lot of examination. But for now, it provides some background for the quote of the week by David Zweig, who spent hours at Twitter headquarters after the release of the Twitter files, and he concludes in quotes, This isn't simply the story of the power of big tech or the legacy press to shape our debate, though it is certainly that. In the end, it is equally the story of children across the country who were prevented from attending school, especially kids from underprivileged backgrounds who are now miles behind their more well-off peers in math and English. It's the story of people who died alone. It's the story of the small businesses that shuttered. It's even the story of the perpetually masked 20-year-olds in the heart of San Francisco for whom there's never been a return to normal. End of quote. Well, you know what? I'm not holding my breath for an in-depth look at the pandemic response, let alone any accountability. I got to say, I am proud of the fact that really early on, I started to remind people that, you know what? All family backgrounds are the same. Sending some kids home from school is very different in the living circumstances than others. I think that level of sensitivity was sorely lacking through much of our COVID debate, but I'll leave that for now. You know, one of the things when I'm traveling around, I think, and we talk about being Canadian, well, I talk a lot about the markets, as you can guess, but I, I just think I feel fortunate that we have uh, such incredible platforms to do our business on, like the TSX Venture Exchange. Uh, Tim Babcock is the vice president head. I want to welcome him to the show. And Tim, just want to say thanks very much for taking the time. Absolutely. My pleasure, Mike. Thank you for having me. You, you probably don't know this about me, but I can be incredibly tiresome when it comes to things like uh, the importance of raising capital, you know, for economic growth, for our standard of living, et cetera. And that's what makes me also think of TSX Venture right away, because, of course, the number of companies, different industries that it serves. So give me a quick snapshot of that uh, so people are up to date on it. I, I just can't believe the array and different types of industry slash uh, businesses you're dealing with. Absolutely. We have um, we have approximately 1,800 companies listed on TSX Venture Exchange, and the um, the breadth of industries is is really incredible. Obviously, Canada is very well known for its mining industry and support of energy and mining exploration, but we also have everything from uh, a multitude of technology companies. We of course have cannabis companies now. We of course have blockchain companies now. We have consumer products. We have financial services firms. We have insurance companies. Um, practically any industry that you can think of is listed on TSX Venture Exchange. And absolutely essential to help companies, you know, raise the money to get into the marketplace. Obviously, uh, growing, you know, to huge size. We've got lots of success stories. I mean, uh, across the across the board. But that that. Breadth of industry is fascinating to me. And again, I don't expect you to know this, but we've been big um, talkers about the resurgence of the resource industry, and we were not late on that. And uh, how important I think the role that the TSX Venture is going to play going forward with that side of the industry in terms of getting them listed, helping raise money, being efficient, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, as, as you're very well aware, um, Canada has a very long history in providing growth capital to junior exploration companies. And uh, TSX Venture Exchange is the primary platform in Canada for doing that. We, um, we're very proud of our mining franchise, and we are very proud to support um, all of the junior exploration companies listed on TSX Venture um, in good times and in bad. And, and uh, we certainly hope that the good times outnumber the bad for sure. But um, it's very exciting to see what's happening in the industry these days. Yeah, the other one is, uh, you know, or I, I get a sense when I look at what's on the TSX Venture, I get a, a sense of the growth of the sort of the tech. I mean, I know that's a broad term, could be biotech, could be this, that, but we sort of generally know what I mean, uh, where it's really helped out a heck of a lot of companies in that area, which you know, I think everyone sort of appreciates that's by nature a growth area. Yeah, our our um, innovation franchise has grown tremendously um, over the last uh, five to seven years. Um, I don't have the the specific numbers on mm -hmm. hand, but um, we have um, uh, our technology industry has really um, raised significant amounts of capital on both TSX and TSX Venture. In fact, um, it has surpassed the energy industry and is now number two behind mining in terms of capital raise on our markets. Wow. And again, uh, for me, I love that reflection on the economy. Uh, uh, you know, raising capital, et cetera, is just such a key going forward and a challenge also for Canada going forward. Tell me a little bit about the process, though, and not necessarily that you're at, uh, at TSX Venture directly part of, but just a, a guess. And I know these are, you know, sort of broad questions, but how long does it take to really get a listing kind of when I start out and I want to get listed on the TSX Venture? And again, you're not responsible for all the different parts of that, but just to give me a ballpark. Sure. Um, I think um, maybe just to step back a, a moment, I think it's interesting to, to look at what we provide for all of those companies. Mm -hmm. And of course, we provide a platform um, to list publicly and attract investors and so on. But it's not just that listing venue that um, that is important to the marketplace. What is really important is the due diligence that we do on those companies, the, the oversight that we provide. And what that does is that brings confidence to the investing public. So we don't have companies listing on our market without um, capital being there to support them. And that capital is not going to be there to support them without confidence in the market. And so that listing process um, that may be uh, you know, two to three months or it may be six to eight months, depending on the circumstance, um, but that listing process involves a lot of rigor around um, do these companies meet the standards that we have set for participation in this market? I'm, I'm sort of smiling, thinking uh, one of the sort of phrases of the year last year, especially the last quarter, was due diligence. <laughs> and that's what I see. One of the things I think about the TSX, uh, you know, venture is that, yeah, it does give me confidence. And I think that's just such a huge, I mean, it's, it sounds obvious, but, you know, maybe people really like to think of the confidence they can have. And just what you've added there is, is important because, uh, you know, there's no harm in doing a little due diligence, that's for sure. Although some Absolutely. people have been reintroduced to that in other areas. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, you know, it's important that way. Do you, do you have any idea? And again, I'm, I'm you know, a bit of a trick question because I'm asking you for some stats. No, just give me a ballpark. Uh, how much money the TSX Venture helps people raise? 
Absolutely, and and you know this of course fluctuates year to year with um, with differences in the in the marketplace and so on. Uh, 2021, um, as I'm sure will be no surprise to anybody, was an exceptional year in terms of capital raised on our market. Um, our our issuers collectively raised over 11 billion dollars on TSX Venture in, in calendar 2021. Last year, um, the markets of course uh, fell off a little bit, particularly around the innovation sectors and so on. Um, but in aggregate, um, our issuers still raised six billion dollars on our market last year. Wow. Uh, and are they all? Ha- do they have to have a Canadian head office? Absolutely not. Um, we mm-hmm. uh, we have a, a large number of international companies listed on both TSX and TSX Venture. I think the number across both exchanges is approximately two hundred and fifty um, international domiciled companies listed with us. Wow, wow! And I'm obviously that helps attracting international capital and businesses, et cetera. I would assume. Yeah, that's it's a very important part um, piece for us. Um, obviously, we we like to see companies from outside of uh, the Canadian borders um, list with us, but we also want to see the capital from outside the Canadian borders come and invest in our companies. And we have people um, uh, strategically located around the world in London, in Singapore, in Israel, and of course, um, multiple people in the U.S. Um, and their role is not only to attract companies to list with us, but also to attract capital to come and invest in those companies. The other incredible thing is the amount of volume that's changed. Now, just so you know, Tim, that just reflects how old I am. You know, <laughs> I remember, you know, vol- uh, trading volumes. I-, I can remember I was there, uh, you know, when we get into the late 70s, early 80s. And I look at sort of the trading volumes now. And you're right. 2021 was obviously an exceptional year, but there's nothing to say. Uh, again, there's in fact, there's no evidence to support that isn't the momentum as we go forward over time. But uh, just the trading volumes have traded so much. And I, I can't even imagine the technology you have to employ. You know, it's sort of I, I could make a case that the TSX Venture is a technology company. Absolutely. I think um, when you look at the the broader businesses within um, within our organization, so we have uh, clearing and settlement businesses, we have data businesses, we have technology businesses, and all of those things feed into um, how the market operates and how it continues to operate smoothly. There is um, there is a lot of infrastructure behind um, what you and I may see as uh, as day to day investors. Yeah, I can't even imagine it actually. Yeah. You know, I mean, because the volumes explode, uh, the constant technological innovation, uh, the speed of which you can do things. I mean, as you say, then you got to settle uh, trades and that kind of stuff. I, it's it's actually quite mind blowing when we're talking about the number of shares that are traded in different areas, as you said, geographical, but also uh, different uh, number, 1800. Yeah. You know, I, I'm just sitting there with, a, I sort of have a smile on my face just because I can't imagine it. Mm-hmm. And one uh, one interesting point to, uh, to tie a couple of those things together is the amount of trading that comes from outside Canada. On, uh, on a daily basis across our markets, um, around 40% of trading volume comes from outside Canada. Wow, I had no idea it was that that great. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah, it's a, a heck of a business. Let me just say that yes, a heck of yes. a business. Uh, what what if there is one thing you could sort of share with the public that you just? I mean, I, again, I'm going to come back to what I said at the outset. We sort of take something that runs so smoothly with no hiccups. We take it for granted, no matter what we're talking about, you know. And uh, I I've sort of match ma- uh, match that for investors across the board, you know, for the TSX venture is that we just sort of take for granted that it works. 
And so we don't think much about stuff that works. And I'm just saying, is there any kind of maybe misconception you see or something you'd like to leave the audience with about uh, this incredible trading platform? Well, I think one of the things that, that um, I'd like to highlight is the the ecosystem that plays into the success of this market. It's not mm-hmm. just TSX Venture. Um, of course, there's a lot of uh, infrastructure behind it, but there's also a broad eco- ecosystem within the legal community, the accounting community, the investment banks and brokers and so on and so forth. And one of the, the you know, going back to your original point on being proud to be Canadian, one of the incredible things that that we have in Canada is this um, depth and and breadth of experience in capital markets, and that allows us to um, you know punch way above our weight on the mm-hmm. global scale. Um, you know when you think about this um, you know tremendous number of companies listed publicly in Canada and the opportunities that provides for investors, and you think about all the capital raised here. Um, that is way above what um, anyone would consider Canada to to provide on the global scale. Yeah, it's an incredible story. I appreciate you t- finding time just to give us a taste of it. But as I say, I, I've been so interested in it because I realize the importance of what's been going on there uh, of the TSX, TSX Venture Exchange. Tim, thanks so much. Thank you very much, Michael. Tim Badcock is Vice President and Head of the TSX Venture Exchange. I'm going to get Mike Levy in here right now. We got the inflation numbers. I guess what it was it Thursday. We got the inflation numbers out of the states. Man, were they ever anticipated? I guess some people really wanted them to drop. Ergo, that has an implication, of course, for lower interest rates. Other people said, uh, you know, I don't know if it's going to be that good. Well, it came in right on schedule. Mike Levy joins me now. Mike, yeah, I mean, I, I don't think I could remember a forecast that ticked more boxes of you know, 6.5% inflation, exactly what they forecast, the month over month, exactly, the core, exactly what they forecast. Uh, this does not happen very often because, I mean, they're they're using so many variables, Mike, but we saw that one-tenth of one percent drop to 6.5 percent. It was 7.1 percent in November, and it peaked um, uh, at 9.1 percent. So we've seen a pretty significant drop, um, and, and I guess the real hope is, is that the inflation really is in a downward trend. But, you know, Mike, there's one factor there that I keep bringing up is the employment numbers and they are so strong and there's going to be a push pull there because both the fed and the bank of canada want to see employment softening also yeah what's interesting though is in the aftermath immediate aftermath i was looking at what the market's saying and there was literally a total consensus that meant that the federal reserve would still raise rates a quarter in february it's just like in bank of canada is going to raise january 25th the consensus strong, but it's more than a consensus. Everybody says so. It's a hundred percent. Yeah, it's a hundred percent. But so, I think it's it, coming, I was going to say, sorry, Mike, I think it's coming back to the scenario you were painting last week. You said there'd be another bump, you know, maybe two, but it's going to be much more of let's wait and see attitude, you know, because for example, employment is always a lagging indicator, you know, so it looks like they are prepared. I'm just talking about some of the language to sort of slow down at this point and just step aside till they see the full impact on the economy. 
And I'm going to take a step back here, Mike. Uh, I was talking in the previous weeks how I really think Tiff Macklem is right up there as being one of the best central bank heads or governors or presidents, uh, depending where you are, anywhere in the world. Like, I, I, I really have a lot of respect for him. But I was saying that the U.S. Fed uh, was going to continue to raise rates where the Bank of Canada may hold back. And I gave it a, hey, wait a minute here. If that happens, what happens to the Canadian dollar if the Fed keeps going? So I believe what you're saying is going to happen. I think it's going to be a bit of lockstep here between the Bank of Canada and the U.S. Fed because they're both getting the same information. Yeah, and I've been critical uh, and I think justifiably slow, especially how slow they were to understand that inflation wasn't transitory. But at the same time, I want to give them credit. They have been consistent in their messaging. It was always going to be, we're going to check the data. And that's, I think, the phase we may be entering into. At least the market thinks that's the phase we're entering in. And I think one of the heads of the Federal Reserves, the different ones they've got in the States, um, said he thought the era of these big jumps in interest rates was over. And, uh, you know, that again, I'm just saying that's what they're reporting at this point. So, yeah, I think that wait and see period is coming upon us. And uh, again, um, back to the data, Mike, and uh, th this is where I think, and I'm going to use an expression, the bugger factor is, is gasoline prices. One of the reasons inflation came, gasoline prices were down 9.4% uh, after following falling 2% the, the um, month before. So that is a driver. And uh, I think with what's going on with the economies worldwide and things starting to slow a little, there might not be that same demand. So maybe we're going to see them continue to drop. Well, and also as we get into February and March, especially where we had the immediate impact of the Russian invasion, Russian sanctions, that's the month we're going to be comparing ourselves to. You know, keep in mind, we're going to get into the later part of the spring and uh, into summer. We're going to be comparing ourselves in Canada, this is, of course, mm -hmm. but to $2.20 cent per liter gasoline. In the States, it could be $5 if you're looking. Yeah. So the benchmark is so much higher. I don't know how inflation stays up because again, as we always say, inflation is the rate of change in growth, not the, the absolute price. So we're going to start comparing to much higher prices across the board in so many areas. So Mike, that brings up the question, recession. And where I certainly was certain there was going to be quite a significant recession, with just what you said right now, when we start comparing numbers year over year, and not absolute prices, but from what it was a year ago, I sort of take a wait and see attitude there. I, I, I think we're going to have some recessionary times, but I'm not looking for the bottom to fall out. Well, and again, that's the big debate. It's I think it's sort of a consensus that the economy is going to slow down in the States and Canada and Europe, but it's what degree? You know, and for example, I watched a little bit of action in the European stocks and, and the euro this past couple of weeks. And I think the reason is the worst was factored into pricing. You know, yeah. <laughs> you know, as the world was coming to an end, oh, maybe it's not coming to an end. It was much warmer in the spring. You know, hence, uh, you know, not gas prices could drop because we didn't use as much. So that's always the case, too, is what we're factoring in. But I'll, I'll say that debate's still raging, though. Economic slowdown, probably consensus to what degree is not a consensus at this point. And just one last thing, because you and I talk about it, particularly on your mind, Mike, is sure it's slowing down a little bit, 
but you still 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 have to pay four or five dollars for a head of lettuce, six or seven dollars for a head of cauliflower. And I'm down in the U.S. right now. You can't buy eggs. Eggs are nine dollars a dozen. So there is the slowing of the economy and prices are coming off but there are areas where boy right now at this point it's costing people an awful lot just to live day to day yeah as we say when we talk inflation we're talking about the rate of increase we're not talking about absolute prices mike thanks very much have a great week you too and thanks mike time now for the shocking stat of the week Well, I bet you're not surprised that most of us are paying more in tax than we were last year, or the year before, or the year before that. Now, I'm talking income tax, sales taxes, property taxes, net carbon tax after any rebate, liquor, tobacco, excise taxes, fuel taxes, licensing, import duties, natural resource taxes, and numerous other provincial or municipal-specific taxes. And inflation, my goodness, that's pushed many of these taxes higher much higher in some cases. As I said, I don't think many people are surprised we're paying more in tax, but you may be surprised by how much. As University of Calgary economist Jack Mintz points out, at the end of 2022, per capita taxes were 5,000 higher on average than they were at the end of 2019. Wow. And I'm going to give you just one example. Because it started on January 1st with increased mandatory Canada pension plan contributions, which I hope you're listening to. Because now you pay about 6% of your earnings up to a max of earning 66600 And if you do that, now everybody gets a personal exemption of about 3500 So you actually pay 5.95% on $63,100. Now here's the number you should know. That means you're paying $3,754 if you're up at that category. Or 5.9% of your earnings below that. Your employer also has to match that amount. But here's the killer. If you are self-employed, you got to play both the employer and employee portion, which this year for someone earning 66600 are you ready? Works out to $7,508.90. My goodness, that's 625 per month. Now, the point I want to bring to your attention is you've got a lot of people saying, hey, that's okay because you're saving for your retirement. I say not so fast. Do some homework. Do the math. Because instead of going into the Canada Pension Plan, if you were able to put your mandatory, so I'm not changing that, same contribution, same mandatory, but it goes to a personal retirement account in your name, well, you'll get two things. One, you retire, your monthly payout would be a lot higher. Or you or your estate would own the lump sum that gets accrued. As it stands now, it doesn't matter. You pay in for 35 years and you happen to die shortly after. All your estate gets is 2500 bucks. Think about that. I mean, someone could have been paying in CPP for his or her working life, whether it's 30 years, 35 years, even longer, but they pass away. Let's say they only collected two years of benefits. Well, that's tens of thousands of dollars contributed. What? Your estate gets 2500 You should know that. I know there's a lot of variables, but I still want to give you just one example so that you get the idea. Let's say you started work today and paid into the Canada Pension Plan at today's rate, or not even changing it. We know it's going up, but I'll keep it at that for the next 30 years. Let's say you had a conservative return over that time of 6%. At the end of 30 years, 
your account would have accrued $235,000. And that could have been left to your spouse or other heirs. I said, under CPP, they'd only get 2,500. It ain't a good deal. I know there's a lot of variables and the numbers could be considerably different, but very much higher too, both in terms of the value of your personal retirement account or your monthly payout. But the point is, the Canada Pension Plan is not a great deal. I want to bring in Ozzy Jurek now. Ozzy, we had quite a week where we had like Scotia Bank saying that we're looking from a peak to trough, 20% drop. TD Economics said that too, uh, looking at mortgage uh, defaults. Although the number like 20,000 defaults, Scotia Bank CEO said, but that's a small number compared to how many people are in a home. But I wanted to be a little more positive today and focus a little bit on Alberta because it's also my poster child for you know, the energy industry is having a tremendous impact on the overall economy, government finances, you know, that ripples through the other parts of the economy. So, yeah, it's been down a little bit, but it's certainly been doing better than the rest of the country, it seems. Much better. The uh, area, which is the Alberta Real Estate Association, has came out with a report saying there are some declining sales in the later half of 2022. But overall, sales growth was strong in places like Calgary, Red Deer, Grand Prairie, and Edmonton, while Lethbridge, Medicine Head, and Fort McMurray's had, a, had a, a decline. And also, December came in in Edmonton at 30% below December the year ago. But compare that to Vancouver, where we had a 50 and Toronto 60% decline in sales. So it is done better. And the interesting thing, Mike, is that sales prices are up. In fact, the average price in Alberta has increased by over 5%. And if you look at only the detached and row homes, they're up 9%. Yeah. And that, that talk about a difference, eh? <laughs> you know, everywhere else. I mean, I, I know you've done something on this, but if you get a 20% decline in the market that so many have experienced, and you would happen to put 20% down a year or two ago, man, your equity's wiped out. But as, as you say there, not the case in Alberta as it is in Hamilton and Vancouver and Montreal, Toronto, you know, that list is a long one. But, you know, Calgary, Edmonton, Red Deer seems to have escaped that, that uh, horrible headline. Yeah. Well, and when you take a look at sales, we know in Vancouver, we always hear that we now have the worst in the last 10 years. Well, the Alberta Real Estate Association said that the province sales remain consistently above the long-term trends. So we're doing better. So it's maybe not too surprising when you consider two things. One, immigration. We talked about it a couple of times uh, this year on the show. And Alberta has the highest uh, Im immigration as it had in years, people saying to go there. And then the second thing is, hey, people are leaving the big cities. Yeah. Now, let me come to something else not quite so positive, because I want to talk about rents. <laughs> I was huh. chatting just for a moment with Michael Levy about this. But, you know, I am still astounded when I go to a city like Vancouver or the greater Vancouver area. And I just want to let everybody in the country know what these rents are. So, yeah, prices may have gone up in Calgary, for example, but they still look awful good compared to Vancouver. But what about the rents? I'm still blown away when I see them. Yeah, well, there's a company called Live Rent. That's L-I-V dot rent. And they look at apartments, condos and houses for rent all over Canada. And they came up with sort of a neighborhood study of unfurnished suites. So a year ago, it was about $1,850 per average one-bedroom rental in, in Vancouver, average in the whole area. And downtown, it was, uh, it, it went to, I mean, your overall went to $2,200. That's $400 more than it was a year ago. But downtown Vancouver, it's now for one-bedroom 
2,700 doors. And Mike, are you sitting down? The three bedroom suite is 5,952. Holy wow. mackerel. $6,000. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, I'm lucky enough not to be renting at this point in my life. And, uh, you know, just because I'm not subject to that. And you just sort of go, wow, I, I'm not aware, uh, you know, keeping up that way. But you look through all the neighborhoods and you, you can't find anything under, say, $2,100. Uh, you know, you, you find, as you say, when, once it's a family and they're looking for three bedroom, my gosh, everywhere, it seems to be astronomical. Yeah, even Mount Pleasant is 2700 for one bedroom suite and 3300 for two bedroom. So you really have to shop hard to make sure that you get a, a somewhat uh, affordable uh, rental value in Vancouver. Uh, let me just switch gears now uh, for something, because it's, it's important. If people are thinking, you had mentioned last week, that you're sort of sensing that we could get a bottom, uh, you know, as we come into the Outlook Conference and beyond, you know, just in this period, I mean, down markets. And by the way, I noticed right away that uh, TD Economics agreed with you. They thought we'd get a bottom in early 2023. Now, on top of that, fair enough, and you'll talk more about it at the Outlook. But then I see that, you know, uh, they're looking to even make it maybe more difficult for buyers uh, to get a mortgage and, uh, you know, new stricter rules. And I, it's just a head shaker for me. Well, they're talking right now, this is the Organization of Financial uh, Institutions uh, uh, Services or Services Institution. They're looking for feedback on the potential of uh, new rules. But usually when they're looking for feedback, that means they're probably made up their mind. And what, they, what they're asking is that they want to test borrowers on a loan-to-income and debt-to-income basis in a new way, restrict debt payments as a percentage of their income. And then the current test, they want to expand the current stress test model. Michael, anybody that's going for a mortgage, get yourself pre-approved now and, and beat that because when they're looking for input, they pretty well have decided. One, one thing, two things on that. One is I think that's just good advice, Ozzy, that uh, I've got a friend who's just sort of tinkering around, looking at the market right now. And I said, well, go get yourself pre-approved. There's no downside ever to it. Know what you're dealing with. Maybe some uh, flies in the ointment, you'll get exposed early. But if you've got that pre-approval, that makes the buying process easier. So that's, that's one side. Um, but I'm also looking at the other here when you hear about making it more difficult. And that is, if you are renewing your mortgage, this is something you told us, well, you've told us many times over the years, but you reemphasize, if I'm renewing my mortgage and I stay with the same lender, I don't have to do the stress test again, let alone anything new. And I just want to reemphasize that because that's a huge advantage for the existing lender. No question. Uh, and it also makes, makes them happy because it forces you literally to stay there unless you increase the amount that you borrow. And unless you have done the trigger point, I mean, you know, even if you're on a fixed variable term payment, you think you're fixed forever. No, you're not, because <clears throat> when you hit the trigger point, uh, you will have to renegotiate. <clears throat> and depending on what that is, they will come after you for a stress test. Well, again, people should just be aware of it. Now, okay, I want to finish with this. This is a little bit out of left field I'm throwing at you. But come on, I saw some newspaper reports this week that showed for the second time a Toronto house was sold when the owners didn't know anything about it. I mean, <laughs> I mean, the owners didn't sell it. Well, the crazy thing, fraudsters, uh, you know, a brazen, you know, in this particular case. In one case, a 95-year-old dad was put into a home. The children didn't live in Toronto, and uh, they rented it out to who they thought were good people, and they sold it. 
And in the second instance, the people went abroad and they hired a local realtor to analyze and get them a tenant. And they had tenant with great documentation and they put it up for sale. Now, when you have great documentation, it was, of course, fraudulent. Mm-hmm. And so clearly you got to, you know, have sort of double, triple and checks. I mean, you think it wouldn't be possible that somebody had the guts to move in, put it up for sale <laughs> and sell it. But we hear this kind of fraud going on in bed and breakfast all the time. And when people manage it absently or, or by phone, that people go in and steal stuff or, or mm-hmm. get collect the rent up front, $3,000, and then they don't even own it. So we have to be really careful that people don't steal your identity. I'm not, I'm not sure what one could do, though. I mean, first of all, we don't look at everybody like they're a potential crook. That's difficult. I mean, they must be going through, you know, dot the I's, cross the T's, you know, look for documentation. If you get a recommendation, follow it up, not just read the piece of paper. I mean, there's things like that, but, man, it's a tough world out there. It is. And, you know, it's it, it, it's eyebrow raising uh, all the things that are going on out there. Well, on that cheerful note, <laughs> I'll see you. Thanks very much. I'll tell people to go to ozbuzz.ca and wish you a great week. Thanks, Michael. And just remember something. Uh, it occurred to me the other day that silence is golden. Unless you have kids, then silence is just plain suspicious. <laughs> I want to go live to the trading desk, grab Victor Adair for me. You know, Vic, I've had currencies on my mind this week. Of course, it's so dynamic. I mean, I've said for years, if I could only know one value sort of at a magic wand and I'll know what's going to happen, it would be with the US dollar. Why? Because, of course, commodities are measured there. It tells me about prospects for other parts of the world because, as you regularly say, money goes into the US for safety and opportunity. Well, it's just fascinating to see that the U.S. dollar certainly has come off its highs with significance. Yeah, I mean, it's no wonder you've got the euro or the currencies on your mind. I mean, the U.S. dollar hit a a 20-year high. The euro hit a 20-year low back in September. And since then, we've seen a real move in the opposite direction on both those currencies. Um, You know, if we go to the... the, Well, here's another little sidebar that goes with that. Since late September, the European stock market, which had been left for dead, okay, has rallied much more. It's up about 30%, while the Dow is up about 18 19%. So the euro currency has outperformed the U.S. dollar, and the euro stocks index, which is kind of like their Dow Jones, has outperformed the Dow significantly as well. Well, two things for that for me. And one is such an important lesson, and you've talked about it many times, but it's tough for people. So the European stock market went in the tank because the assumption was it was going to hell in a handbasket in Europe. Then presto, you get the warm weather. So they didn't use near as much natural gas. The price of natural gas fell. Maybe it wasn't so dark, but the market had anticipated the worst. So it, to me, it's recovering out of that. And it's important that people understand the market's reflecting what the sort of prevailing thoughts are. It's already factored in the prevailing thoughts. So when maybe it's not as bad, the market reacts. Yeah, well, leading up to that point in time in September, October of last year, when the U.S. dollar hit a 20-year high, I mean, the U.S. dollar had just come off. But the previous 12 months, it had had the hottest biggest rally against other currencies that it's had since Paul Volcker was in office back in 1984. So we'd had this spectacular move. And, you know, any time you're trading any market, you know, you get to a point, you have to ask yourself, you know, 
this has been a hell of a run. I mean, is there anything more to it or are we do a correction or, you know, where we're at? And I think that's what you mean. The, the, the euro had just been beat six ways to side, so, Sunday. You know, the, the British pound was at a 37-year low. The yen was at a 32-year low and so on and so on. And like, it's almost like they couldn't get any worse. So the key question for us, of course, is, is this rally in the euro, the British pound, the yen, you know, for real? Is this the, the big, big turning point in our life or is this a correction? Yeah, I, I mean, a, an incredibly important thing. But there's a difference also between tra traders and investors. You know, for me, I've got to have an answer to that question. But I'm also thinking back to what the January 6th, the capital riots, whatever you want to call those things, when the U.S. had dipped. Remember, all the conversation was you know, after several years of strength and being the dominant currency, is that it for the U.S. dollar? And, uh, and it wasn't, obviously. It wasn't. And then, so the same kind of questions occur to me at this point. And uh, yeah, maybe I'll, t maybe I'll give my answer at the Outlook as a nice little plug for that. But I do have an idea, and I'll give you a hint. No, I don't think it's it. Yeah, you know, you see, but, I'm going to agree with you there. I mean, as a trader, uh, I'll be in and out of markets. And one of the things that I do, and you and I have talked about this before, is if I've bought something and it's not going up, I just get rid of it, you know, because I've got a fairly short-term time horizon. Now, if, if I buy something and it goes up, I'll, I'll try to stay with the trade, but I just mm -hmm. can't. In my, my, my personality, I can't hang on to uh, a losing trade, and that's really, really important to me. So I think that this rally in the euro from the low it had back in September, October, is a, a selling opportunity. When, and one of my key things when I look at Europe, I think we've kind of just figured, or at least the market has just kind of assumed that the war in Ukraine is just going to kind of drag on, but it's going to be contained. You know, it's really not going to be an issue. And I'm thinking, holy mackerel, you know, I, 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 I'm not a military strategist, but I could just think, you know, if something, you know, goes haywire there, you know, we'll, we're right back in the soup again. So there's just asymmetrical risk reward to, to buying the euro after it's had this big steep rally. Yeah, it's funny. I sit there dreaming of the euro rallying to 120 so I can short it again, you know, so I can play it to go down again. I want a number number in that way. And again, as an investor, I'm longer term in those views. And your point is well taken. You could have that view, but you might be in and out of the market 14 times, you know, while I'm on that. And it's just important for people, you know, to grasp about that side of it. But let me go to the other side, though, as I mean, we've had at least a correlation with gold. I mean, man, that gold rally again, reconfirms one of the things I posted on uh, uh, Money Talks tweets was a great line that says, uh, you go bankrupt slowly and then fast. Well, I felt I've been feeling for a long time. That's what, again, I'm talking investing. You know, I couldn't afford to be out of something like gold. In my, this is a personal account. People have different circumstances or silver because once the move starts, it's quick. And I'd have trouble getting in. Um, but what what have we had? Two hundred and fifty bucks, two hundred and seventy dollars from the lows that we had a few months ago in gold to up three hundred dollars in two months, Mike. And there your you quote, go. By okay. the way, was in that Hemingway's first novel. That's the right. Sun also rises, and some guy that they met uh, described how he went bankrupt. Uh, slowly at first and then very quickly. <laughs> yeah. And well, that's how I see these markets moving, though. There's sort of these long base building. You're gonna your patience is tested, but. What I've noticed is once things start to move, uh, it's very difficult for, depending again on one's psychology, to jump in at that point because you're going, God, I could have hold it the last two years at this number. 
Yeah, no, if we stay with gold a second, let's also do the backstory on gold. You know, it hit an all-time high on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and then for the next several months, it fell about $450. And when I look at the futures market and also the gold bullion ETF market, uh, just in, in shorthand, my conclusion was people just got tired of owning gold. Like they, they lost interest. There's other things to do. So we got into October, November with the U.S. dollar, you know, and, and I guess all, along with the, the fall, the reason for the fall there, uh, the U.S. dollar had been so strong, which is toxic for gold. Real interest rates were starting to rise, which is toxic for gold. But since the beginning of November, we've had this $300 rally in, in uh, gold. The, the U.S. dollar has been weak, but the relationship between gold and interest rates hasn't been there. And Martin Mirenbeel and I swap a lot of notes. And we're, we're talking about so something else is going on. Mm -hmm. And what, it, what seems to be the story is that other central banks or sovereign wealth funds or what have you have been buying gold and, and like just aggressively bidding it up. And you have to ask yourself why. And certainly one of the shorthand answers I have for that is I think the Americans basically confiscating Russian assets was a wake-up call to countries around the world that are not on a best friends basis with the United States. And so buying gold and tucking some of that away for you know, maybe in the future might be one of the things that's driving those, those purchases. Well, I'll also say at the World Outlook Conference, Marty Armstrong will be there. Uh, his, his models have been very accurate on the U.S. dollar. So I'll be asking him on the longer term, what is he looking for? Is that a trend reversal of significance or not. We'll do that. Victor will be there. You can grab him, ask him questions. Uh, and Vic, on the other side, as you say, with gold, it's going to be fascinating. Uh, you know, uh, I, I see, I would already talk my own book. That's an expression, by the way, for people listening. You talk what you already think. But I, I, I'm not so sure that we're still not what, uh, right what I said up front. Paper currencies are in an interesting time. I do think there's Lots of questions about paper currencies, the monetary, and as you said, I, I think very well put about the confiscation of the Russian assets. To think that wasn't going to have repercussions was more than naive. Well, the currencies here, I think, are a bit of a subset of the big, big story, which is we just created a lot of debt, you know, and uh, what kind of an impact is that? I see I'm going to put a chart up on my blog uh, here this afternoon when I finish getting it up just charting the incredible rise of the debt service costs in the United States. Like we're, we're just a hair away from that being the biggest line item in the American federal government uh, bookkeeping. Okay. It, the, the, this is what I call the consequences of what the fed did last year are starting to come due. They raised interest rates. And now as people go to refinance, they're, Finding holy mackerel, they got where, where am I going to find the money to to you know pay these bills? Well, and as I say, we're watching revenues go down. There was a huge sharp a sharp drop in revenues in California. It'll be interesting to see, you know, because obviously capital gains uh, tax revenue is going to go down. It's the big story. I couldn't agree more. Vic, thanks for taking the time. VictorAdare.ca. VictorAdare.ca. Check them out. Love the charts. I say that every week because I do. Vic, thanks for finding time. Thanks, Mike. Time now for this week's Goofy Award. You know, this month, Simon Fraser University is holding, in quotes, climate change, anxiety, and grief seminars for students with a clinical psychologist. 
According to the university student services page, the climate change anxiety seminars help students understand different types of climate change distress and offer some strategies to cope. Leading the seminar is a registered clinical counselor and psychologist. Her name is Shauna Adams. The accompanying information note says, she is humbly aware of her white privilege and is passionate with facilitating people to reach their full potential within a caring, empowering environment. Well, listed in the seminar are the following outcomes. They want these goals. Understanding the symptoms of climate change, anxiety, and grief. Learning to cope with climate change, anxiety, and finding out how to access further help and support. By the way, last year, Health Canada published a report. It's called Health of Canadians in a Changing Climate. And it stated in quotes, studies are also showing that people can become distressed about climate change itself, resulting in increased anxiety, grief, worry, anger, hopelessness, and fear. I mean, even they say, the report goes on to say, even people who are indirectly exposed to climate related hazards can experience poor mental health outcomes, including vicarious trauma, secondary stress, compassion fatigue for those whose lives have been disrupted by extreme events. Well, first, let me say this. Mental illness among young men and women is a serious issue. As noted psychologist, social psychologist, Jonathan Haidt states, for young people born after 1995, in quotes, what you find is they have extraordinarily high rates of anxiety, depression, self-harm, suicide, and fragility. There has never been a generation this depressed, anxious, and fragile. As I said, an incredibly serious problem. You know, by uh, 2020, more than 25% of female teenagers and 9% of boys had major depression. Obviously serious. But when it comes to climate change, what would we have expected? From elementary school, children have been constantly bombarded with cataclysmic scenarios that suggest the world is going to end. And it's worked. A 2020 survey by the Department of Public Safety found that following the worldwide climate marches that year, 57% of kids were rating the threat of climate change as more grave than guns and illegal drug use. But the goal has been that, to literally scare people into action. And no one should be surprised that part of the fallout is increased anxiety and distress, especially among young people, including children, who way too often are used as pawns in this much bigger game. And that game, well, as Greta Thunberg states, in quotes, the climate crisis is not just about the environment. It's a crisis of human rights, of justice, of political will, colonial, racist, and patriarchal systems of oppression that have created and fueled it. We need to dismantle them all. As I said, a much bigger agenda is at play. One way to decrease, by the way, anxiety among younger people is to also feature the many notable science. You want to decrease anxiety? Feature the many notable scientists who don't subscribe to the Armageddon-like scenario, the alarmist agenda. They say that climate change is a problem, but it's not the end of the world. You want to reduce anxiety? Well, we could talk about the numerous times those Armageddon-like predictions did not come true. Or we could talk about the limitations of long-range modeling and the dramatic impact if just one variable is off by a small amount. My point is, given the rhetoric, the fear-mongering that's been so common and consistent, the we're all going to die mantra, the constant barrage, I don't think we can be surprised when so many people are gripped by anxiety and depression. 
Hey, that's all the time I have this week. Just a reminder, by the way, that we have the World Outlook Conference. If you're a regular listener, how could you miss that? But we do. We've got the World Outlook Conference February 3rd and 4th coming up. Oh boy, it's just a couple of weeks away at the Western Bayshore. Looking forward, of course, all of us are, Victor and Michael and Ozzy, because it's live in person. But what a great array of talent we're bringing you. I think it's a fabulous weekend. Uh, get all of that information. Think about it. Talk to people about it. Get your questions answered at February 3rd and 4th. Just go to mikesmoneytalks.ca. And in the meantime, you know, I keep notes every week about what stories are not making it into the mainstream that you may not have heard about on the newscasts, etc. I try and fill some of that gap with Mike's Money Talks on Facebook, Michael Campbell's Money Talks on Facebook, Money Talks tweets, or Mike's Money Talks Talks CA. I really encourage you to listen. It just broadens it. I don't care what your opinions are. I just think that you should have as many facts as possible. Get exposed to things that make you think. Get exposed to opinions maybe you don't agree with, but it forces you to uh, refine your own. All of that takes place on the social media. I hope you join us. In the meantime, have a terrific week. This is the Money Talks podcast with Michael Campbell, available at mikesmoneytalks.ca or through your favorite podcast subscription service. Join us on Facebook at Michael Campbell's Money Talks and on Twitter at Money Talks Tweet.